NATO has adapted, NATO has changed. It would be, I think, astonishing to anybody around in Lord Ismay's time from 1949 to see the alliance today. And yet, its core trinity of purposes is also clearly evident and mostly unchanged. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm your producer, Major Haas Yano, and for today's episode, I'm pleased to bring you Lieutenant Colonel Seth Johnston, a Soch faculty alumni who is currently serving as an adjunct assistant professor in the Center for Security Studies at the Walsh School of Foreign Service, Georgetown University. Lieutenant Colonel Johnston recently sat down with Soch instructor Captain Anthony Palakarin to talk about NATO. How the organization has evolved over time, the current challenges it faces, and how it must adapt to overcome future threats, such as those emerging in the cyber domain. Well, all right, without further ado, here's the episode. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the SOCH Podcast. I am Captain Tony Palakarin, and I am an instructor of international affairs here in the SOCH Department at the United States Military Academy. For this episode, I will be interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Seth Johnston, who serves as an adjunct assistant professor in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. And we will be discussing the challenges ahead for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and how NATO can adapt and overcome those challenges based on the organization's lessons learned from the past. NATO has played a critical role in ushering in a period of peace and stability and security in Europe and North America. The NATO allies, however, are confronting a daunting and complex challenge that are testing both their purpose and unity. To discuss more about this, I have the pleasure of introducing Lieutenant Colonel Seth Johnston. Hey, good morning, Tony, and it's great to be with you and the SOCH team to talk about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a very important topic, as you mentioned. Thank you, sir. Lieutenant Colonel Johnson's teaching and research focuses on European and international security and history. Most notably, Lieutenant Colonel Johnston is a social alum, and he was an assistant professor of international relations in the social department from 2012 to 2015. He is the author of How NATO Adapts, Strategy and Organization in the Atlantic Alliance since the 1950s. And his book has become the number one most requested book among practitioners at the NATO Library in Brussels. So that is quite an achievement. Well, you know, Tony, one of the great things about teaching in SOCH uh, is that we prioritize teaching, uh, but we also uh, really care about producing some first-class scholarship. And, um, you know, if how NATO adapts, if that book rates as good scholarship, then it's a frankly, a credit to um, to the SOCH ethos of scholarly excellence that we were able to do it. I, I wrote the book mostly while I was teaching there at SOCH. That is quite an inspiration, sir. And it was a phenomenal read. For everyone listening, the book is available at the West Point Library. Uh, please do go in there and um, request it. It is definitely available out there. That's where I got it from, and definitely a phenomenal read. It is an important book because NATO has had to adapt constantly from the time it was established in 1949. At present, NATO has 30 members, with the latest member being North Macedonia, who was added in 2020. But the first Secretary General of NATO, Lord Esme, succinctly described the founding principles of NATO was to keep the Soviet Union out, 
the Americans in and the Germans done. However, today, everyone's tracking that NATO is in Afghanistan. And sir, you have served as a task force commander in NATO's resolute support mission in Afghanistan. So given NATO's current role in Afghanistan, how would you contextualize what the first Secretary General of NATO said to where we are today with NATO, who is entangled in Afghanistan that is far outside its traditional geographic area? That's a great way of putting it. I mean, can you imagine what Lord Ismay and the 12 countries that joined and created NATO in 1949 would think about it today? As you said, with more than twice as many members, some of those member states um, at the time having been behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe or even part of the Soviet Union itself, you know, that, that this membership would have changed, that the geographic orientation of North Atlantic would translate into this military operation in Central Asia. It's just astonishing how much NATO has adapted. On the other hand, this quote uh, attributed to to Lord Ismay, NATO's first secretary general, um, which by the way, has never been reliably sourced. No one can ever find any real solid evidence that Ismay ever said this, but it keeps getting repeated because it's just the best way of simply describing the variety of purposes that have always been at the heart of why NATO endures. Uh, you know, Back then to keep the Soviet Union out, the Americans in and the Germans down, as you say, um, I think the way that we could think about that that quip um, in a way that's more historically neutral is to to say that NATO is about the following three things. You know, keeping the Soviet Union out. Well, that was really about addressing and preventing threats to the peace and security of the members. Keeping the Americans in. That was about combating those threats through transatlantic cooperation, and in particular, uh, having the United States involved in European security affairs, which was something that the United States did not do prior to, to NATO. You know, George Washington's famous uh, guidance to, to the United States for its, uh, for its foreign policy should be to avoid entangling alliances with Europe, and the United States did uh, for a long, long time. NATO changed that. Uh, so we're keeping threats out, we're keeping the Americans in, which is to say we're addressing these threats in a transatlantic way. And when it comes to keeping the Germans down, uh, that was also a historical lesson learned, you know, that realizing that Europe was a place where great power conflict and, and competition and, and war had started twice in the 20th century, and leaders wanted to prevent that from happening again. The way I would talk about keeping the Germans down, in, in Ismay's word, um, would be to say that it's really about maintaining a peace and stability within the countries of Europe. Um, and part of that is, is about the role that the United States played in creating and fostering an environment where the European Union could thrive. So Tony, back to your original question, yes, NATO has adapted, NATO has changed. It would be, I think, astonishing to anybody around in Lord Ismay's time from 1949 to see the alliance today. And yet, its core trinity of purposes is also clearly evident and mostly unchanged. Those purposes um, also being like quite elegantly expressed in the preamble to the North Atlantic Treaty as well.
Now, when we are involved in Afghanistan uh, as part of NATO, and given that we have this new peace deal signed with, or this new deal signed with the Taliban, well, the prior administration, what would be a likely end strategy for NATO's involvement in Afghanistan? What, how would NATO react to this peace deal, and how can NATO pull out of Afghanistan eventually, or will they ever pull out? It's important, I think, to start with how did NATO even become involved in Afghanistan? We talked about how unusual that seems that a treaty alliance based around countries in the North Atlantic would end up in its longest and, and most intense military operation in Central Asia. And so it's important to rewind the clock, I think, um, to understand how we got here. As you know, the, the core of the NATO treaty is the treaty's Article 5, the collective defense provision, yeah, the, the part of the treaty that says that an attack on any one country is an attack on all countries. And in the 71 years of NATO, this Article 5 has been invoked only one time by the Allies, and that was the day after 9-11-2001, uh, when the United States was attacked, and the European allies in Canada stood by and stood with the United States, which is not the situation that the the original drafters of the treaty imagined. That, those were not the conditions under which the treaty signers imagined that Article 5 would be invoked. But things had changed, um, and, and this was the situation. Uh, and the Allies came together after 9-11 to express their solidarity. Now, the United States uh, initially decided not to pursue military operations in Afghanistan under the NATO umbrella. But in 2003, fast forward a couple of years, tensions among the allies had been strained a little bit, not because of Afghanistan, but rather because of the Iraq war. Uh, many of the European NATO allies were opposed to, uh, to the U.S. Iraq war. Uh, and as a result, uh, the idea for NATO to get involved in Afghanistan uh, was in many ways a, a political bargain to reestablish allied solidarity. Uh, the United States was increasingly focusing on Iraq um, and seeking some relief uh, to its burdens in Afghanistan. Uh, and the allies, the European allies, saw participation in Afghanistan um, which they viewed as a legitimate response to 9-11 as a way that they could reaffirm allied solidarity. So in short, uh, NATO became involved in Afghanistan in 2003 um, and then took on a much bigger role after about 2006 and 7. NATO became involved in Afghanistan less because of any strategic vision for how to undertake the campaign in Afghanistan, but rather for for larger political reasons having to do with, with allied solidarity. What that meant um, was that the, the strategy in Afghanistan was always a US-led strategy. The allies and NATO as an institution deferred to the United States um, for how the mission was, uh, was going to, to proceed in Afghanistan. And that remains pretty much the, the case today. What I think will be important for the, you know, the, the lasting, one of the most important lasting effects of uh, Afghanistan on NATO is understanding how we got in together. Um, it will be important um, that 
when and if NATO leaves, that that is Afghanistan, that, that leaving Afghanistan is also something that is a decision that, that the alliance takes together. Um, and so if the United States negotiates a, a deal uh, with the government of Afghanistan or, or with the Taliban, I think it would be um, in our interest uh, also to ensure that that deal is then consulted with, with the NATO allies um, so that we have a, a common way ahead for, uh, for how things are wrapped up. Exactly, sir. So allied solidarity, like you mentioned, was one of the key reasons why NATO went to Afghanistan with the United States, because everyone were unanimous and they wanted to stay, stand as one. But today, that allied solidarity does face a monstrous problem in the likes of populist sentiments. Though President Biden was victorious in 2020, populist sentiments are still very much around in the United States, and it can rise back up in the future again. Euroscepticism is also ever-present in the EU. Now, this combined with the fact that NATO members have dissimilar attitudes towards Russia, for example, Hungary opting in for the Russian COVID vaccine rather than waiting for the EU-approved vaccine, highlights a monstrous problem for NATO, as I mentioned previously. What are some of the structural changes that NATO needs to incorporate to better prepare for such threats in the future? One of the funny things about NATO is that on the one hand, it's viewed as one of the most enduring and strongest and most successful alliances in modern history. But on the other hand, NATO is almost always said to be in crisis. You, know, you look back through the title of books and articles, even going back to the 1950s, and crisis, discord, disagreement um, are always uh, what seizes the moment in NATO. So there's this duality uh, to the alliance where it's it's successful and it's enduring, but it's also uh, it's it's also thought to be in crisis all the time. Um, what is it that that explains this? I think what explains this is actually an important strength of the NATO alliance that very few other alliances have, and that is that NATO is not just a treaty-based alliance like we talked about with all the various articles, but NATO leaders made a decision real early on in 1950, just a year after the treaty, to turn NATO into an international organization with a whole lot of permanent institutionalized structures. And one one such structure that's that's most important, and it's the only one that's specifically called for in the treaty, uh, is a North Atlantic Council. That is a, a permanent standing political body that exists to facilitate political discussion among the allies. This, this institution, this forum for states to, uh, to get together and routinely discuss uh, their security concerns, on the one hand, uh, helps NATO endure because it creates political buy-in and facilitates consensus decision-making among the allies. Um, but achieving that consensus, as you said, is never a straightforward or easy process. And so when you're in it, when you're having those discussions, it's frustrating, it takes a long time, um, it's, uh, it's challenging. But the fact that it's getting done actually helps the alliance resolve or at least address its differences and, and move forward. 
you brought up a great point there that talks about permanent structures. Uh, recently, President Macron termed NATO as brain dead, and there have been calls for the formation of a European common army. Uh, something similar happened with calls for the European defense community back in the 1950s, but ironically, that was defeated by the French. Can there be a European common army in the future, and what are the possible challenges to that initiative? Because you, like you said, NATO was able to thrive and adapt because of its uh, formation as an international organization with permanent structures that served as political bodies. Is that possible with a European common army? And Woody, how do you see that moving forward, sir? Yeah, let me address that in, in two ways. I think on the one hand, this is a question about how NATO adapts uh, when the, the crisis is really bad or, um, you know, or, or when the alliance is really criticized. Uh, and then the, the, other, the other question is, uh, as you mentioned, about um, European alternatives to the transatlantic alliance, let's say. One of the things that I discovered in the research for the book, How NATO Adapts, that we discussed earlier, is that the more severe the crisis facing NATO, the greater potential for changes and adaptations in the alliance that, that proved especially successful. Uh, for example, one of the biggest crises in the, the NATO alliance occurred in, in the mid-1960s, when France, uh, in particular, thought that uh, that NATO structures were not well suited to the time, actually, French uh, French President Charles de Gaulle called NATO structures obsolete, a, a word that um, uh, that former U.S. President Trump uh, used to describe NATO in the 21st century as well. That criticism by the French president in 1966 led to the expulsion of NATO headquarters and NATO forces from France and the non-participation of France in NATO's integrated multinational military structure for decades. Um, it was the most severe rebuke of NATO's institutions, I think, uh, in its entire 70-year history. But that crisis also led to some really long-lasting and, and successful changes. Uh, there was a, a, a big shakeup in NATO's military strategy. There was a, a real evolution in the way that NATO did uh, planning and sharing for nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence, which was so important during the Cold War and remains important today. The other, the other really big innovation uh, that came directly out of the big crisis in the 1960s was a, a doubling down on the political as well as the military character of the alliance that we just talked about as, as being so important. So the bigger the crisis facing NATO, the bigger the potential for some, some sweeping changes to address those things. And NATO's got a really great track record of, of addressing those changes. On to the other part of your question, which is distinctly European approaches. There's a really consistent pattern in how NATO adapts too. In the book, I describe this, this pattern of, uh, of what I call a, a process of critical junctures. A critical juncture being a term in the academic literature on historical institutionalism. Um, but what tends to happen is that after the crisis, uh, whatever it happens to be, that shows NATO's strategy or organization to be inadequate to the times. Uh, there's then a big search for, for different 
alternatives or possibilities for what to do to fix those problems. And one of the most common trends in ideas for how to fix the problems uh, is to pursue a distinctly European approach somehow. As you mentioned in the 1950s, the idea was to create something like a common European army and what was called the European defense community. Um, and there have been other efforts like that as well um, in the late 1990s um, and, and even now in, uh, in the European Union as well. So this is a, this is a common trend, but, um, yeah, but as I've written um, it also in a, a report from the, the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School about the most recent European Union efforts, um, these efforts at distinctly European approaches to, to security rarely end up living up to, to their own ambition. Ultimately, uh, European countries end up coming back uh, to some of those fundamentals that we discussed in the beginning of our conversation here from Lord Ismay about keeping the Americans in. And you know, the, the, the resources and the commitment of the United States is ultimately something that the European states have, uh, have continued to value. So the question you know, ends up being uh, really one of, of burden sharing. You know, how do the transatlantic allies balance the, the security resources uh, put into the alliance, but then also how do they, how do they balance the, the decision-making um, and you know, policy and strategic prioritization among sometimes competing interests? Right on. And burden sharing, as you mentioned, sir, is one of the most uh, frequently criticized point, at least here in the United States. But Back in 2017, the total military spending by all 29 NATO members at the time was $900 billion, and that accounts for 52% of the world's defense spending, albeit the United States was the most uh, contributor to that amount. Yet there were significant capability gaps that still persist in NATO, especially in the cyber domain. What should NATO do better to account for defense spending that's already coming in in order to boost the confidence of members that their contributions are not being wasted. So that gives you know, the United States and other members added confidence that money spent on NATO is money well spent. You're absolutely right that um, one way or another, uh, the question of burden sharing is really the, the original source of tension among the allies within the alliance. Uh, the first time that the United States and the European allies uh, really got into it over disagreements about uh, about military resources in the alliance was back in 1952 at NATO's Lisbon summit, uh, which was trying to generate a whole lot of conventional forces for the Cold War, um, and ultimately some some ambitious targets were set in that 1952 summit uh, that that were never realized. Uh, so going all the way back to the 1950s, we we see this this tension in the alliance of uh, who ought to foot the bill uh, for providing the, the resources uh, in the alliance. But at the same time, uh, there's the figures you cited in, in terms of you know, dollar figures and resources available to NATO should really be a source of, of comfort and optimism for the allies. I mean, as you mentioned, NATO members altogether spend slightly more than half of all world defense spending 
It's also worth pointing out that, you know, even though the United States is the number one defense spender in the world, if you added up um, the defense spending of all the other allies, they would be the number two defense spender in the world, um, slightly ahead of China and well ahead of Russia, for example. So when it comes to the amount of money that, uh, that European countries are spending on their own defense and that NATO allies are spending on their own defense, there's a lot of money available. You know, the, the question is, are we spending that money as efficiently or effectively as, as we could? As you mentioned, there are some capability gaps, there are some emerging challenges in the cyber domain and in outer space, et cetera. And the question really ought to be, um, how do NATO allies efficiently allocate this huge amount of, of money in a way that effectively addresses their security? For the moment, uh, there's really no better place to look for constructive ideas about how to do this right now than, than NATO's own report uh, or the report um, of the, the group of independent experts that the Secretary General commissioned uh, that was just recently published on, on NATO 2030. Uh, it was co-chaired um, by an American and a German, um, but had uh, a lot of really great contributions from, uh, from experts uh, throughout the alliance. You know, this document contains dozens and dozens of, of specific practical ideas uh, for uh, for how NATO could continue to adapt and and to work on these things more efficiently and effectively. I personally think there's there's also a, a role here for uh, for distinctly, we talked about those distinctively European efforts uh, or even efforts within the European Union uh, to more effectively uh, you know, represent for Europe within the alliance. I think it's unlikely that the European Union uh, will ever be able to or certainly anytime soon, act in a way that uh, that achieves a, a coherent defense and security policy for uh, for its members. But an area in which I think it does have some potential um, is in harmonizing defense procurement and uh, the the research development acquisition um, and, and interoperability aspects of things. Um, you know, NATO does not operate as a as a common pool of funding. Um, NATO operates in a way that coordinates allies' individual actions. Uh, according to the NATO treaty, this is called uh, self-help and mutual aid. And the, and the NATO treaty calls for allies to align their economic practices um, so that they can achieve greater interoperability and efficiency for their defense spending. So I'm in favor of, of any realistic effort, whether it's done in NATO or whether it's done outside of NATO, to harmonize those practices um, and seek economies of scale or, or other efficiencies. And, that, and if, if that's done among European allies uh, through the EU or through other multilateral mechanisms, um, then I think any of those initiatives should be welcome. Right. So as you rightly pointed out, you know, it is the economies plays a huge role into how much spending NATO can do and how much money it is able to bring in. So one critical threat for the economies of Europe, as well as the United States, is in the cyber domain. So in light of recent, the, the recent solar wind cyber attacks 
and election meddling on both sides of the Atlantic, it is abundantly clear that Western democracies and institutions are being threatened continuously without the use of overt military force. So what role does NATO play in mitigating such a threat in the cyber domain? And are there any structural adaptations that NATO needs to make immediately for cyber defense? I, I think cyber and the the rise of cyber as a as a domain that affects all of our lives and that also has security implications. You know, cyber is is just the latest new domain that has captured reasonably NATO's attention in in the very same way that that back in the 1960s NATO recognized that its focus solely on on conventional and, and nuclear uh, deterrence through military means um, was was not addressing the full range of security challenges and and that's why uh, there was that effort that we discussed earlier uh, to to broaden NATO's scope uh, at that time to um, to really double down on on the political aspect of of NATO's business and I think what we're seeing today is is a is a similar kind of recognition that the sorts of things that that the allies um, and that NATO altogether has been doing to address security, you know, do not capture the the full range of things that are um, that are affecting the the safety of of people's lives in the alliance. Uh, cyber is a whole new uh, domain of competition. You know, but also it has to be said, you know, public health. Uh, you know, the the pandemic has now resulted in in more Americans killed um, than than during all of World War II. And, uh, and the pandemic is obviously something that's uh, that's affecting our other European allies as well. Yeah, so the question for NATO now is, once again, the alliance realizes or it's become clear um, that there are aspects of modern life that do risk the security and stability of members. And so what are the what are the new what are the ways that the allies either um, through NATO or through other forums can uh, can address those things. Um, the good news uh, for for NATO when it comes to, to cyber, when it comes to the domain in outer space, um, when it comes to the rise of China and the attendant you know, shifts in, in the global order, yeah, NATO has acknowledged and, and put all these things on, on the agenda. Um, and that's that's a good first step. Uh, it remains to be seen, I think, what exactly um, NATO is going to do about it, um, or whether it's even appropriate for NATO to be the the lead actor on on some of these challenges. But if history proves any guide, you know, NATO's recognition that there are things it's not doing that it needs to be doing better, or that somebody ought to be addressing, uh, is is usually the first step to um, to some productive adaptation. It may not come quickly, um, but it's it's usually a first step in the right direction. It is indeed true that NATO does provide the umbrella defending Europe from conventional and nuclear attack and a secure geopolitical landscape for the world's two largest economies, the European Union and the United States. So NATO is far from being obsolete, and it is very much relevant to our national security and the national security of Europe. So that is one of the key points that uh, hopefully our listeners were able to get out of this podcast. I'm tempted to just double down on, on two of your concluding comments, if I may. First is, 
you're absolutely right. The United States and, and Europe, the, the allies in NATO, are still the, the two biggest economies in the world. Uh, and we have the most integrated economy in the world. The United States is, is the biggest investor and customer in Europe. Uh, and European countries are also the biggest foreign investor uh, in, in the United States. Um, so the economic as well as political and military ties across the Atlantic are huge. And of course, these are also countries in Europe that largely share our, our values of liberal democracy and respect for individual freedom and the rule of law. Uh, so this alliance, it's military, it's political, it provides an environment in which economic prosperity um, has rewarded the people on both sides of the Atlantic with extraordinary wealth over 70 years. And that's really important. Uh, the second thing that's, that's uh, worth mentioning again about security is, is this, you know, we talk about what is the value of NATO in the 70 years leading up to the, to the 1940 campaign of world war two, Germany invaded France three times. And two of those times, the United States got sucked into, uh, you know, to the two world wars of the 20th century, which were the most costly and, and deadly conflicts of all time. In the 71 years of NATO, there has been no great power European war. And that is a credit, at least in part, to the security and stability that, that NATO has helped provide. So when we talk about the, the value of, of the alliance, uh, that's a track record of great success that that's worth understanding uh, and worth fighting to preserve. Yes, sir. I absolutely agree. NATO is very important for our future and for our future national security. That being said, sir, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us again. And hopefully we can uh, see you again soon on the show and we can discuss more in-depth topics about NATO and national security. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Soch Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whichever streaming service you're using. There's a lot of great upcoming content in the works, and we'd hate for you to be missing any of it. We'd also greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review and recommend us to all your friends. You can get in touch with us by emailing us at sochresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research, lab, at westpoint.edu. We're always excited to read comments, questions, and critiques from our listeners, social alumni, and friends of the department. Thanks again to Lieutenant Colonel Seth Johnson for sitting down with us, to Captain Tony Palakaran for hosting the interview, and to the West Point Band for allowing us to use their music. The views expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. This is Major Haziano signing out. See you all again soon.